I'm good. And I'm Gamgoon, and this is the Good Game Podcast. A retrospective on recent events in the gaming industry. All right, folks, so today one of our first topics is going to be Gilded. For those of you who do not know what Gilded is, Gilded is a platform for chat communication that was established in 2017 by Eli Brown, a former member of Instagram's growth team and Microsoft's Xbox division. They are essentially a competitor for Discord, or they're going to become a competitor for Discord. You can sign up for their service right now. Their website is, I believe, gilded.com. Let me double check that. Uh, it's gilded.gg. My apologies. So, GameGoon, what, what is your opinion of, of somebody trying to come in and sort of disrupt Discord's market at this current time and the state of things? Well, I think it's an open market, really. If they come in with a stable chat that has features that work well and it's a clear UI, people will possibly switch over. Maybe it just depends on word of mouth. The reason I switched over to Discord was just because I heard other people liked it and it did things that the one I forward bars using currently couldn't do. Yeah, so I, I think one thing that will definitely help them is that the reason they came to our attention is that they recently raised $7 million from veteran investors uh, and and supposedly their big selling point as of right now is that they have been built from the ground up for gaming. So they have scheduling. They have things that tie directly into the game, supposedly. Uh, so we might I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw something more interesting, like sort of Twitch drops maybe appear on the platform. That could be kind of an interesting way to get people into Gilded. I don't know how exactly they would. How do we, what exactly do they connect to Twitch drops? Like they basically people using their servers would be able to get drops for games, kind of stuff like that. That could be interesting, but I don't know. Twitch drops are interesting kind of phenomenon. Some people do say it's just kind of false numbers and people just there for the advertisements, but I don't know. It's kind of like, it's interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, if your goal, though, is to try to break a market that's already pretty solidified, because I feel like Discord probably has the market share on this right now pretty solidly in hand. Uh, so if you're them, it makes sense to do whatever you have to do to kind of get people to adopt your platform. Even if they're just adopting it to get those drops, it does get them to make an account. It gets them onto your platform. There's a huge advantage to just that conversion right there. So I definitely think it's something that they could take advantage of and leverage to kind of get people to, to give their platform a chance that might already be well steeped in Discord. Because I'm pretty steeped in Discord. But being a content creator, and I know a lot of the people that, that listen to the show may or may not be content creators as well, I recommend you check out Gilded because when you're a content creator, it pays to be on the front end of new technologies rather than on the back end of new technologies. Because if Gilded does take off, if Gilded suddenly like outclasses Discord in every single way, you're going to want to be one of the people that adopted early so that you can get that Gilded partnership when they're looking for anybody to do it kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I would recommend if you're a content creator, especially to go check it out for sure. Yeah, it definitely can hurt. I do wonder what's like how they're going to try and prioritize or what kind of what their budget is going to look like because seven million is a lot of money. But I don't know how big their team is. But I don't really know how much would go to I guess R and D for features to I guess code or design things to improve their platform over and make it more gamified or whatever since they're trying to make it for gamers you know i don't think that gamification is necessarily the the number one thing that they need there i think if i were them what i would do is i would maybe put some time into researching how gamers spend their time on their their computers because let's say that they they do some research and they discover that 
80% of gamers spend their time either in-game, in a chat communication program, or on social media. Well, then at that point, social media integration becomes a very big priority. That's something you should make a big part of your platform because you're trying to provide all of that stuff in one place so that instead of them spending their time in multiple places, they're launching their games through your chat platform, they're checking their social media through your chat platform, because it's all about that engagement time. From there, you have to figure out how to monetize it. But from that perspective, it makes the most sense for them to try to figure out what are gamers doing on their computers and how can we give all of that to them in our platform. And that is another thing to think about what kind of monetization schemes or monetization plans they're trying to come up. Because obviously the investors gave them the $7 million, but they obviously want a return on their investment. So we probably think they probably have some kind of Prime or Nitro or premium membership. But what else would they be trying to do to... Uh, make revenue. Well, I would think that they would go the same rate as Discord in introducing a store. Uh, I think introducing a store would be a really, really good idea for them because that is just a great way to generally convert people being there for games into a cash flow. Uh, I don't know if they'll do that exact thing, though, and I'm not sure how much success Discord has actually had with that. However, I do think that if they were to offer a store and also offer integrated drops for those games, that would actually increase their sales rate of those games. Or they could even do something smarter and they could look to partner with a pre-existing store and just ask for a percentage. Like if they were to partner with a rising platform like, oh, I don't know, Epic Game Store and integrate them into the platform and then just say, hey, Epic, we want like a 5% kickback for every game that sells on our platform. That would actually be a really great business model, I think. Uh, well, Discord ended up like discontinuing their store because they realized it was kind of taken away from their focus of being a chat platform. So I don't know if the Gilded will take that step and see if they can do it better or even like you're saying, just partner up with a kind of gaming platform just integrate it. But there is a thing about trying to integrate too many things into your things with too many like integrations into your project to kind of change it. And also the keep talking about the Twitch drops. I don't really know how that would directly work on the platform, but it is still an interesting concept. Well, okay, so I that that exactly tells you how much time I spent in Discord Store right there. The fact that I didn't even realize that Discord Store was discontinued is a good indicator of exactly how much time I've actually spent in Discord Store. I'll give you a hint. It's none. Um, that being said, like that that's sort of a good point. Like they don't want to overdo it, but that's why you do integrations with other companies and you don't necessarily build it yourself. Like how cool would it be if you know how it shows like somebody is playing this game or whatever? Well, what if it says your friend is playing MechWarrior 5 and then like you can click on the MechWarrior 5 that it says they're playing and it'll send you straight to the Epic Game Store to buy MechWarrior 5, which you can then launch through the app to join your friend and play MechWarrior 5. Like if you're removing steps for people to game together there, there's a really good opportunity, I think, to drive sales. And then if you get Epic kicking back 5% from that, that's great. And as far as the drops go, like you do a thing where like if you join MechWarrior 5's Discord or you join one of their partners or not their Discord, their Gilded, or you join one of their partners' Gilded's or they do tournaments on Gilded because that's something they're talking about having. You can basically just have those rewards available to people that support your game on Gilded in various places. That would be kind of a cool thing to do, I think, at least to get people there. Uh, I think that like chances for that would be slim because I think about but if they're playing League of Legends, that's not going to be on Epic Game Store, so you won't be able to do that. They won't have the integration there. But 
And if you're friends, you probably will have this. If you have this, if you like the same games, you might already have the game, so you wouldn't need necessarily to buy it. But there is probably, I think that that interaction would have a low like interaction count. But I see what you're saying. That would be cool if they did that. But I don't know. I think it's just focus on just getting the chat platform basic features right before worrying about revenue and added stuff. Well, speaking about basic features, because I have to mention this due to my back, my background in design, and, and we discussed this before, so you know I'm going to bring it up. The one thing that I've noticed so far is that the screenshots I've seen of Gilded look, design-wise, identical almost to Discord. Like, the only difference I noticed is that the server icons, instead of being circles or rounded rectangles, are basically just rectangles. But otherwise, their color schemes... All of it just kind of matches the dark mode version of Discord. And I wonder if they're going to run into issues with that, because what will happen there is it really comes down to whether or not Discord has a design patent for the way that their product looks. And as much as it's evolved, you have to wonder if they do. They may not. In which case, Gilded is kind of welcome to come in there and scoop that up. Uh, but there, there could be some issues for them there, and they might have to go a new direction with the way it looks, because right now it basically looks like Discord. Yeah, well, we'll be keeping our eye on this in the future. We'll see how they kind of, if there's any more news tidbits for the rest of the year. Speaking of things that are looking great or interesting at the very least, let's talk about Gears Tactics visual options menu. Uh, for a very long time, Game critics and things have looked at the options menu as sort of an indicator of a couple different things. Total Biscuit used to say that the game options indicate how much a game developer is willing to part from their thought that their vision for the game is perfect and how much control they're willing to give the player over their experience of the game. So basically, the more robust the options are, the less the game developer is sort of egotistically clinging to what they want the game to be. Uh, so it's it's very interesting when you see something like Gears Tactics, which has basically changed their visual options in such a way that it is extremely functional. Uh, I'd actually like to see this extended to more games. Have you seen anything about this game, Good? Uh, I did see a couple articles talking about it. They do have seem to have kind of kind of like a kind of simplified, but an also det- a detailed simplified version of their settings. They look kind of show you kind of ah, ah. I'll start over <clears throat> yeah I did see some things about the options videos they have for their ah. let me get straight Yeah, good. I did see the kind of people talking about the options for Gears Tactics and how they have a really robust kind of Detailed, simplified selection of options in their or settings of options in their menus. Like they have good descriptions that break down what each effect does. So I just think that's really helpful because there's a lot of times like people might not exactly know what motion player does or bloom. It's how the different settings affect the gameplay and them having detailed descriptions along with the visual representations kind of preview right there helps you figure the game for how you want to actually see it. So what you're saying, Game Goon, is when you look at the options and it says uh, setting level for NRAY TXAA is this, you, you don't understand immediately what that means as a player, right? Not at all. 
<laughs> no, I'm the same way. I'm like, I, I don't know what this means. I don't know which one of these anti-aliases I'm supposed to select. I know they do different things. I have no clue. Uh, so what they've done that's really, really great is that a lot of the options that would normally be kept in a dropdown, they've put on a slider so that you can at least see the range of options that are available to you. And as you change those options, there is a visual representation in the option menu that shows you how it will change the appearance of the game. Now, if all that wasn't enough, being able to immediately see the effect of what you're changing, which is, in my opinion, one of the biggest innovations here, because I've seen a couple games that do that, and that's great, and I think it's something that more games should aspire to do. But if that's not enough, Gears Tactics also introduced a benchmarking section in their visual options, where you can benchmark your system after choosing your preferred options to ensure that it is the optimal experience that you're after. I think benchmarking is a really underused um, kind of features. And I guess it could be kind of added extra work to kind of put it into your game for like testing settings to help people, your gamers have like the right settings for the game. But it's really nice when games add it in so you can actually kind of see like yes i think my computer can handle this game on ultra but can it actually handle the game on ultra yeah i it's actually funny you should mention that uh so recently folks you may or may not know this i've mentioned it on the the youtube channel but i actually changed my setup and i now have an ultra widescreen monitor that is 21 by 9 i think that it's 3440 by 1440 but i could be wrong um, anyways, so I, I switched over to this ultra widescreen monitor and it introduced a whole bunch of challenges. But one of the things I noticed is I switched over to Overwatch and previously I would run Overwatch on ultra and it was no problem. Everything was smooth as butter. So I jump over to Overwatch and wow, this game looks really great. And I get into a match and I cannot even tell you guys the level of lag that I was experiencing. And I was just like, man, this is crazy. So I... I was like, no, I've always ran it on Ultra. I'm sure that it's fine. I'm sure that's not the problem. And then I dropped it down to medium and everything was smooth as butter again. And I was like, oh, okay then. So yeah, visual options giving you a little bit of benchmarking so you can understand how that's going to affect your system. Very, very nice thing to have there because playing a couple of matches of Overwatch with friends where I was basically lagging super hard wasn't the most enjoyable experience I've ever had. Speaking of enjoyable experiences that I've had as of late. One of the most enjoyable experiences I've had is exploring the new innovations in Old World. If you don't know, Old World is a historical 4X game being produced by Mohawk Games. Uh, Mohawk Games was or is led by Soren Johnson, who worked on Civilization 3 and 4. He was the co-lead, I believe, on 3 and the lead on 4. Uh, and also his wife, Layla Johnson, who works on a lot of the historical events and the writing in the game. It's wonderful. Beyond all the historical events and writing and stuff, that's all wonderful. But you kind of expect that from a historical 4X. What's really intriguing about Old World is that it has so many new takes on old mechanics in 4Xs that have become sort of staples and people expect to be in every 4X. But that doesn't mean they have to be. And this is the kind of game that I love because it comes into the market and it just immediately disrupts things by doing things just a little bit differently. So one of the things that's really great that's new about it is that instead of each of your units having a preset number of actions per turn kind of thing, which is what we expect in 4X, right? You can move this guy two spaces, you can move that guy one space, this guy can attack once, that guy can do this once. Some of those limitations are in Old World. But the actual how much they can move and stuff like that is tied to your overall orders for your nation and your nation generates orders based on a bunch of different mechanics. And then you basically choose how to spend those orders on your units. 
So you could choose to just spend all your orders moving your explorers this round because you just want to explore and you don't really need to go to war with anyone. So you don't have those wasted actions just sitting on your warriors who you don't need to do anything with right now. Yeah, it's a nice innovation on the kind of classic Forex motif. I haven't known the game myself, so I haven't played it myself, but for the little bit I've seen watching, I think the move order mechanics are really interesting. I do tend to play kind of more militaristic expansionist, and from what little I've seen of the game, I think I would probably be more in the early game, more explorative with the current way the units and mechanics work in the early game than since I wouldn't necessarily be doing too much military other than battling the occasional barbarians you find in the early game for city sites. It's a really interesting uh, adaptation. So it's interesting you mentioned that because one of the things that I noticed that's very different in this game is it's very common in other 4Xs for you to build an explorer and a warrior and then explore with both of them. Because why wouldn't you? They both have movement. Why not use it, right? Well, this game incentivizes you to actually use things for what they're meant for. So your explorer gets to move three different hexes for one move order, whereas your warrior only gets to move one. So you won't use those orders to move your warrior as an explorer because he's not an explorer or they're not an explorer. They're a warrior. So you basically use things for the roles they're meant for which is a little bit more interesting to me because it does make things feel more special and unique than if you're just using them all for the same thing, which is pretty common. Like in some games, you even use settlers to explore, even though that's risky, because if you don't, you fall behind. Uh, the, the other thing that I thought was interesting about what you said was basically only running into barbarian tribes. So there are minor factions in the game, too, that you encounter, and those are very interesting because you can either conquer them and subjugate them, or you can ally with them. And I just started a recent playthrough as Roma, and we have the ability to vassalize nations or something. So I'm really excited to see how that's going to pan out, because we had the Gauls right next to us, and I made the, the decision to make peace with them, and I'm wondering if we can turn them into little vassal cities that we don't have to manage, and we just reap all the rewards from. That'd be very cool. Uh, that's another one of their cool gameplay mechanics, is vassalization. Um, but more intriguing than that for me is their family political system. So... In Old World, you're not just playing as a nation, you're playing as a nation and some of its largest, most influential and powerful families. Every nation has like four of them. One of them is typically focused on military, the other is typically focused on culture, the other is focused on food and industry, and the final is focused on money. Uh, so that actually makes sense because most nations do kind of follow that scheme. Now, what happens is when you build a city, you can choose which of those families founds the city. And you can only choose three. Once you've chosen three, the fourth one kind of leaves your nation because you basically didn't give them any power and they don't like you anymore. Um, what's interesting about that, though, is that you have different opinions from these different, different families and you do have to balance them out. And when you found those cities, they have different colors based on the family that founded them. So I'm really intrigued because this is an early access, but because they basically register those different cities as belonging to those different families and the game is full of a lot of interpersonal political intrigue, there could be cool things like one of your families rebels and that city just leaves your empire and goes out on its own, uh, which is super cool. Yeah, there's no uh, just like kind of trying to come uh, related to other games. There's no like Senate or like democracy, um, government, actual setting thing where like the government is the like you like an endless space where you have your government, they you get your population, they vote and stuff. There's nothing like that currently in the game, correct? Well, no, there's not. 
there's not anything quite like that. There have been a couple interactions where like there have we've run into a situation where the the nation wanted me to make a law about something and I had the option to pick a couple different things that will affect the opinion of those families. And I also had the option to let the families pick, but that wasn't actually letting the families pick yet because it is in early access. Uh, but that could provide some interesting gameplay too if you allow the families to deliberate and vote on it, uh, potentially avoiding any opinion penalty that comes with that. But it's really, really intriguing because I feel like what this is waiting for... So, so let me give you an example of something that I was thinking about when I was playing that was interesting. I had a militarist family and an industrial family, and the militarist family was angry that the industrial family had more soldiers. So I built more soldiers with the militarist family, and then I needed an officer to lead those soldiers, and I was going to put an officer from the industrial family in charge of their army because that's who I had available, and I was like, well, man, what if that makes them angry? Uh, so there's all this really cool interpersonal politics that you don't see in other games to, to make your point of comparing it to other stuff, like... In Endless Space, if your empire goes into rebellion, your empire goes into rebellion. Like, everybody just stops making stuff. Uh, in Civilization, it's kind of the same thing. It goes into rebellion, everybody just stops building stuff. Because of the way that they register each of these cities to a particular family, there is the potential in Old World for a rebellion by one of the families to mean that you actually just lose those cities... And may even end up in a civil war, which would be really cool, to be honest. Yeah, what I wanted to kind of relate was that I feel like the families play that kind of, right now, they kind of fill that void of the, basically the government kind of mechanic of the interpersonal ruling kind of in back in the older ways before there was government. It basically was like kings and queens, lords, ladies, families trying to control cities and powers and spreading their influence over these nations. And so... The way that they're doing it with like the families founding the cities and the cities and the families basically everyone's they're like the bannermen they basically they serve the lord they are, go to war for these people they work for these people even though they're part of the bigger people they're probably more loyal to this specific family than the hover in case there's like a coup like a coup d'état or whatever like you said like a civil war which is really interesting how they're going to how they elaborate or iterate on it over the course of the early access. Yeah, well, it's it's also super intriguing because one of the there's different like classes that leaders can have, and one of the leader classes is schemer, which always makes me uncomfortable when you know you have a schemer in your court. I'm like, man, I'm just waiting for them to put the dagger in my back. I gotta watch that one. That one's the one I gotta keep an eye on. Um, but moving on from the great interpersonal politics of the game because that's something I think that really really shines out and that's why I wanted to put some time into talking about it because a lot of other games don't do the internal politics very well uh, in my opinion and I think this does it great um, let's talk a little bit about the goals of the game the way that you win which is the ambitions I believe it's nine you have to complete yeah there it seems to be most of the games kind of Put you as the your basically your everyone and no one in your empire instead of be instead of be like the different pieces that make up your empire. So it's kind of hard to kind of break away and do like the smaller sections of there's these people with this idea your uh, empire nation whatever. And there's these ideas and how they interact with each other without breaking the cohesion of you playing this 
empire that purely has great solidarity they would follow your orders exactly well and and as you say that it actually reminds me and we'll we'll come back to the ambitions thing because that does play into this too but it reminds me that there's also the legitimacy system which is as your leader gains more legitimacy by doing certain things it essentially counters negative opinion from the families so if you're legitimate enough like if the families know that you will straight up decimatus some fools if they mess with you they don't mess with you which is kind of cool. So you can become that evil tyrant that everybody knows if they even try to step to you, you're just going to take them out. Uh, so th there's so much flexibility in that, so much capability in that, that it's really exciting. Um, so onto the ambition system that I was, I was mentioning before. So in most of these 4X games, the biggest problem that I think they have is that 9 out of 10 times they just break down to warmongering. The most used victory condition, I would imagine, in most of these games is take everybody else out. If there's nobody left, you automatically win. Um, and it's it's usually the road that people go to because once you have a strong industry, you can kind of just pump out units and then go to war kind of thing. So there's a couple different games out there right now that are trying to find different ways to give you a victory condition so you can play as a diplomatic or a peaceful player. And I think Old World has found a really good one in Ambitions. So in Old World, when you reach certain junctures of culture and things, you get the option to choose an Ambition. Those ambitions are often based on the families that you've empowered to this point. So the ones I saw most commonly was the first one, which is build four cities or kill five enemy units. So if I wanted to be a warmonger, I could go for kill five enemy units. If I don't, I can go for build four cities. And when I finish that ambition, I believe it'll unlock another ambition. And I think once you complete nine ambitions, you win the game. So what this does is it makes it so that being diplomatic, being a moneymaker, being an industry giant is actually a viable win condition and play style without it being some sort of rigid or not even rigid as much as obscure thing like build 10 of this wonder or whatever, which is or build this extremely expensive wonder like, OK, how does that actually cause you to win the game? Now, here, the idea is that by completing all these ambitions, you have made yourself such a legitimate leader that nobody in the world wants to question you. And I think that's actually a really cool way to work that. Um, yeah, I agree. But I still think depending, so it's just like we only see the early uh, first couple of tiers of the ambitions, but it still might come down to, because let's say it's mid-game and you still get basically kind of the same thing there, where it's like instead of kill five, like kill ten and have ten cities. But at the current point of the game, you have all, you have like, say, five cities, and then you're surrounded by, you've made peace of everyone around you, and then the next cities will have, you have to go, like, all the way to the other side of the map. So you either, you could just, okay, let's say you're neutral with somebody, and then you have an ally. So you can either attack the person you're neutral with to take their cities, or try and go to the other side of your ally and get the cities, or if to kill people, you're people you're neutral with i think it might depending on how the ambitions um the different variety as it goes on in the game i think it might still just come down to war margaret but it like you said it could be diplomatic it is interesting instead of just breaking down to war margaret it is like they do have that slight chance that the options could be there so let me ask you something game when you play 4x's you're a warmonger right we're not really a warmonger i do I do expansionists, and generally I do prepare for war. Okay, so let me let me pitch you a different idea here. What if I now need another city, and next to me I only have my ally, so I marry my son to their daughter in order to allow him to usurp the throne and take their city? No, no bloodshed required. Just just a little bit of marriage. 
There's definitely gonna be. There'd probably be much shit if you're usurping the throne. You're kind of taking the throne from someone else. Unless they doesn't have any, any sons, then I guess you get it for free. But they have sons, you have to go to war. Well, I mean, you you technically don't though. That's the beauty of this game is that if, for example, you're the larger faction, you can make an alliance with them by marrying your son to their daughter. And if they happen to be the eldest male inherits type of or type of nation, then your son would inherit the throne. Like <laughs> there's. I don't think it works like that. I'm reasonably sure that it. there are, like, I can't remember the name of the different structures, but I know for a fact that there's one where it's like oldest male heir inherits or oldest female heir inherits. But no, no, I'm saying I don't think marriage works like that. Like if, like back in like King Arthur times, if King Arthur married his daughter to another, uh, what you say, you're saying, you say you marry your son to their daughter. So you've, they don't have any sons. I don't think it works that way. Maybe it might work that way in a game. So after we see how they do it in a game, but just... No, I mean, it works that way in real life, too. That was the way that people would usurp thrones from other nations. That was also how nations would establish treaties. Like, if they wanted a treaty with another nation, they would marry family together. And then if inheritance fell to that, that... previously outsider they would inherit the throne in case in i mean it d- it depends on every nation because they all had different laws and things but it was possible for that to happen i mean especially when you consider that back then it was more of a patriarchal male dominated world it was not uncommon for somebody who didn't have sons to have a son marry in and and inherit their kingdom or their land you know yeah well, yeah i can see what you're saying now but yeah, definitely, there's a lot of variables. It depends on how they handle the game. But I still think in that scenario, there's probably still some bloodshed. Oh, I, I think you're definitely right. There's definitely some some room for that to end up in war. But I think that they're, the framework that they've put in supports them creating other opportunities to do that, which is what has me excited, right? Um, and this, this takes us on to another part that is very interesting, which is the generational politics And when I say generational politics, one of the events that I encountered was the daughter of the Egyptian queen, who, by the way, Egypt was way bigger than us. And I was like, dude, they will roll us. They will roll us. She ran away from her mom, didn't want to be a royal anymore, decided to run to me and was like, hey, will you hide me? So my options were send her back to the queen and make the queen hate me a little bit less so that her entire nation of Egypt doesn't roll over me or hide the daughter, which would anger the queen but basically establish the daughter as a a person in my empire, which could mean that later on down the line, when the queen passes, she rises to the throne, and now I have an ally in Egypt where once I had an enemy. Um, So there's some interesting politics there, but that's also where the whole marriage and usurpation of the throne comes in. Um, And there's so many different (laughs) variables there that they can play with. And like, it's not really there yet because it is in early access, but the thing is the framework exists. And I have to say, for a game that's in early access, it's super fleshed out. Yeah, definitely. I myself have been watching kind of a couple like medieval, like kind of like Viking, Roman era kind of games, like TV shows right now. So I definitely would be interested in old world, get my hands on it and plan it myself and kind of living out my old, old, old world medieval kind of empire fantasy and see how if my family makes it through and the different things. Uh, uh, speaking of that, cough, 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 cough. cough. Uh, if you guys like what I've said about Old World and you're interested in checking it out, you should, if you're watching this on YouTube, 
Actually, I bet you I can put it in the description too. Check the description of this episode. There will be a affiliate link to Epic Game Store where if you want to pick up Old World, you can pick it up with that link to kick back a little bit of money my way. You don't have to. That's okay, I understand. Um, and obviously, if you feel that colors my opinion on the game, you're more than welcome to, to be wary of that. I don't feel it does. I think I'm just excited because the game is great. Uh, I was excited long before I, I had that link. Anyways, moving forward, uh, Old World is awesome. I can't wait to see what they do with it. There's no roadmap yet. I was looking for one before this episode because I really wanted to know where they were planning on going with it. But they just don't have one laid out yet. They have a bunch of different plans. They have a bunch of different art. They want to add in more events. There's already something like a thousand events in the game, I think. And they want to keep adding more in over time so that you basically don't run into the same game over and over and over again. Which is a cool idea because the way their event system is built, they can support that because it's mostly just imagery and storytelling. And you can basically expand that infinitely within the right framework. Uh, that being said, there was one more topic that we wanted to touch on, which is the full release of Legends of Runeterra. That expansion being called The Rising Tide. In this expansion, they added in the region of Bilgewater, which is where all your favorite pirates come from, uh, along with some, some sea creatures. And I don't know what Nautilus is. Nautilus is scary. Uh, but Fizz is also in there. So we're going to talk a little bit about the new stuff that came in and how that kind of helped out all the different types of decks and archetypes that you do see in Legends... Legends of Runeterra. Uh, Game Goon, how, how are you? I know you were excited about Maokai. Uh, well, he's, my favorite, he's one of my favorite champions to actually play League of Legends. But he has the weird toss mechanic, which I'm not really there for in League of Legends of Runeterra. So I'm glad he's in the game. Still like him. Weird mechanic, though. I don't, I'm not really into tossing. I mean, it's only weird if you don't also look at Nautilus, because I think right now one of the best control decks in the game is Nautilus Maokai Toss. Uh, and there's a reason for that. We'll get there, though, folks. So real quick, we're going to talk about the different things that were added in and the kinds of decks that they benefit. So aggro decks got a boost with this expansion because they got access to Fizz, who is a Bilgewater champion. He costs one mana to put out. And basically, whenever you cast a spell on him, he gains Elusive and cannot be targeted. Uh, sorry, folks, one second. He gains Elusive and he cannot be targeted by spells from the enemy. So that basically allows you to kind of protect him. Uh, he doesn't do a ton of damage, but that's not what it's about. It's just about having that early, quick, ag aggressive character that can do the things. And he falls under that. Uh, quite nicely. Sorry, folks, getting some messages. Uh, and then the other new mechanic they added in is Scout. If you attack with Scouts, then you ready your attack after that attack round. So basically, you can just attack with your Scouts, ready your attack, and go in again. Once again, a huge, huge boost to aggro decks, being able to attack twice early on in the game. And then Bilgewater also came with Powder Kegs, which is a new card that can be created by other cards. And it basically... Uh, sits out there and causes the next time you would do direct damage to anything to increase that damage by two or so. And yeah, that's that's sort of the boost that they've got to aggro. Uh, Game Goon, why don't, you, why don't you take us through some of the new stuff for Tempo? Okay, so I'm not really as knowledgeable in these card terms as good, but Tempo, we got the new Attune keyword, which is when you summon a creature, you refill one spell, spell mana which I feel will be 
if you have like we've got a really good either early game or late game kind of help you just keep up your spell mana to constantly get some spells out either in the late game or just like maybe one or two extra in the early game. Then we got Twisted Fate, who he's a Bilgewater champion. He has a one second. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll run in here real quick too. Uh, so tempo, because I know you're not as versed in card games as I am. So I made some notes, folks, but I, I didn't go into detail. Uh, so tempo is essentially a game style where your your goal is to create incremental advantage throughout the game and hope that by the time you reach a certain point in the mid game that you can snowball off of that and basically win the game, which is why Game Goon mentioned a tune, which is great because it essentially gives you extra resources when you play cards. So you're able to play something while still gaining additional resources out of it that creates card value. Uh, Twisted Fate, if I'm not mistaken, I know you're looking him up, Game Goon, so I'll, I'll let you continue after this. I think that when he comes into play, you automatically just gain a card in your hand, which is one of his Destiny cards. Yes. Twisted Fate is a four cost, two, two card. He has quick attack, and he plays one of his Destiny cards, which is basically kind of follows his main kind of mechanic in League of Legends. He has a one ability that can stuns, one ability that can give you spell mana, or one card that does stuns, one that just gives you a spell mana and a little bit of damage, and then one that does damage on multiple characters. And then when he levels up, every time you cast a spell, you play one of those cards randomly. So it's a good... If you get a nice tempo, you can level him up, play three spells and get all three of his spell cards out in a turn, which would definitely add a lot of damage to that swing. And then another new keyword is vulnerable, which this is basically kind of a reverse challenger. You're able to make an enemy unit vulnerable, and then when you put out your cards for attack, you can force that card to defend against one of your cards. Exactly, which is very, very valuable to tempo because what it means is that you could play, for example, an attuned creature that has two attack, use it to pull a bigger creature off of their bench, say one that's a 3-2, so that you're getting a positive trade because that card is vulnerable, you can put it in front of your 2-1. And by trading a 2-1 for a 3-2, you're gaining that small bit of incremental advantage that tempo is looking for, and that kind of allows you to scale out further into the late game. As long as you can creep, keep creating, as long as you can creep, as long as you can keep creating those advantages, you can creep up on the opponent and, and definitely get the leverage over them, which is why Twisted Fate is great, is because as soon as you play him, you get an additional card. So even if they waste a kill spell to kill him or they otherwise take him out, you still got value because you got a card to replace him. Next up. Uh, beyond that. Oh, go ahead. Next up, we have Colobo. What are the... Main thing for this is Toss. They were talking about earlier Mokai and Nautilus. Toss is basically you obliterate X number of non-champion cards from the bottom of your deck. This is for deck thinning. We have the Bubble Bear, which is an elusive card with 0-6 that has a tune. So it's kind of a card you can use to defend against elusive cards in the enemy deck. We have the Pool Shark. You know that remember that is good. Yeah, so the pool shark is a one cost follower. When you play him, you on the following turn you draw one card that is fleeting, which means that at the end of your turn that card gets destroyed from your hand. But essentially, what he's going to do for combo is he's going to allow you to just draw through your deck that little bit faster, 
which is going to help you get those combo pieces together just a little bit quicker because with combo, it's all about just digging and thinning and getting to just the core pieces that you need. Uh, I do want to mention, though, since you brought up Toss, Toss is a great thing for combo, but it's also very dangerous if your combo does not revolve around a champion because Toss will obliterate non-champion cards. So if your combo is reliant entirely upon one spell, it's not good to put Toss in. On the other hand, if your combo is reliant entirely on champions, like a Thresh and uh, Lucian deck, then you can Toss away and it doesn't matter because all you're doing is getting closer to your win con. Um, and then the other the other card we were going to talk about for combo was Unyielding Spirit, which is a card that I'm not sure why it even exists, because, wow. Uh, I mean, I get it. It's it's super high mana cost. It's eight mana, but it is a burst speed spell, and it grants an ally. I can't take damage or die. You want to know why that's good for combo, folks? It's real simple. Fiora, Unyielding Spirit. I now win the game. Period. Like, there's just... <laughs> At that point, if you're not able to win with Fiora, you're probably doing something wrong because she only needs to kill, I think it's four enemies before she wins the game. So her combo should be all set up if you can make it so that she just cannot take damage or die at all. Wow, that's really, really bad. <laughs> Interesting. Huh, do you think maybe that's going to get a t keyword fixed to... I can't take damage or die this turn, or do you think they're leaving it how it is? Because that is you're bringing it in, that is really strong. Because right now, how it works is that it just gets added to them, but it might get a kind of turn like qualifier added to it. That is really interesting and kind of strong that I see it myself. Well, okay, so the, the thing about Unyielding Spirit, the reason why it won't get fixed like that is because it's eight mana. So you're basically committing your entire turn to using it. And the other reason it's not going to get fixed is because it says you can't kill them and they can't take damage. You can still obliterate them because obliterating them isn't killing them. And this is something that other card games have used before where you can't kill a creature, but you can remove it from the game kind of thing. Um, so that's that's probably why it won't get changed. More than likely, what we'll see instead is we'll see obliterate become a more powerful keyword to counter it if it does become problematic in the meta. But I don't really think it's going to become that problematic in the meta. I think it's really, really strong for combo decks because it does help you protect those key pieces of your combo. But otherwise, it's just okay. You know, there's there's obliterate stuff that'll deal with it. Uh, plus, it is just one follower. So if you put that on a follower that doesn't have elusive and they have elusives, they can still close the game. Uh, if you put it on a follower and then they burn you in the face, they can still close the game. Because it's turn eight, there's a lot of ways they can finish even with that down. But if you're in a combo deck that can almost ensure that your combo guaranteedly goes off. So very cool. Well, turn eight or as early as turn five if you saved up. Oh, that's a good point. As early as turn five if you saved up. As early as turn four if you're in Freljord and you play the thing that gives you an extra mana. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that. I think I have a new deck I want to build now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving forward, though, let's talk about some of the great things that they added in for control. Deep is one of the new keywords, and this thing is all the kinds of win for a control deck. Deep is, I have plus three, plus three once your deck has 15 or fewer cards left. So let me translate that for you guys. Once you have managed to make it to the late game and draw a bunch of cards into your hand, which is the goal of every single control deck... All the things with deep on it become that much bigger. They get plus three, plus three. So basically, by doing what you wanted to do anyway to play control, now everything in your deck is scarier. 
Very, very powerful mechanic for control. I'm a, a big, big fan of this for control. And of course, it pairs well with Nautilus and Maokai, who are the two champions that take advantage of deep and toss. So I'm going to read Maokai to you guys right quick. The first time you play another ally each round, toss two, that is obliterate two from the bottom of your deck, and summon a sapling. Now the sapling, if I'm not mistaken, is just a little dude. He's just a little guy. He's a 2-1. He's fleeting, or ephemeral rather, and he has challenger, which means, hey, this actually factors into tempo decks to some degree. The problem is Maokai is a four cost, so tempo, if you're not already tempoing by then, you're probably not doing well anyway. But anyways, the sapling will allow you to kind of target problem followers, take them out. In the meantime, Maokai will be pulling cards off the bottom of your deck, which, by the way, in case you're keeping track, gets you closer to that 15 cards for deep. Uh, and then we'll take a look at Nautilus, who really sews this up, because this is where it gets nasty, guys. Nautilus is 7 cost, so yeah, it's going to take you a minute to get there. But his ability is that he's 1, he's a 0-12 with tough, so he takes 1 less damage from all attacks. He also has Fearsome, which means that people with 3 or less attack cannot block him. And when he levels up, you copy all of your tossed allies that cost 4 or more into your deck. So basically, it'll bring all of your biggest creatures back into your deck. So let's say you've tossed and you've drawn and you're down to 10 cards in your deck. All of a sudden your deck might go back up to say 16 cards, so now you're not deep anymore. However, you do only have big, beefy, meaty creatures that can close the game left in your deck. That is how you close, that is how you win. Uh, not only that, but because you were deep, he levels up. When Nautilus levels up, he becomes a 13-13 with Tough and Fearsome. And all of your sea monster allies cost four less. What did he put back into our deck? That's right, four cost allies. So basically, all of your beefy big sea dudes cost zero to play, and you now dominate the game. This is the control deck of the current meta, in my opinion. It is Maokai and Nautilus, and it is phenomenal. <laughs> Uh, I should probably cover that in one of the next Legends of Runeterra videos I do, because it just sounds like a blast. Yeah, it sounds really good. Tier Nautilus, another one of my kind of favorite champions in League of Legends, coming to Legends of Runeterra. Again, has the mechanic I'm not really fond of toss, but he does have the thing that he brings you back allies that you toss, so I might try him out in a couple of decks. And then he's just, he's a beefy boy. Hit that deep, get that 13-13. Oof, hope it's not Friday. Yeah, he is a beefy boy, and the sea monsters he brings back are beefy boys too. Let me just read one of these to you guys so that you can see the kind of crazy that these sea monsters have. The Shipwreck Hoarder is a 7-5, but when you're deep, he is a 10-8. When he's summoned, you toss two cards and you shuffle two treasures into your deck. Let me read some of these treasures to you so you guys can see what, what kind of terrible cards he puts in the deck. Neal Breaker, if I'm tossed, draw me instead, deal five damage to all units. Okay, that's not powerful. Plateworm Egg, if I'm tossed, draw me instead, summon three Vicious Plateworms. Vicious Plateworm, by the way, is a 5-5 five, five with Fearsome and Deep, so an 8-8 eight, eight with Fearsome. Uh, and then the final treasure that you can get from them is Treasure Trove. If I'm tossed, draw me instead, create five random cards in hand, they cost zero and are fleeting. So basically, if you put this big boy back in your deck with Nautilus and then you draw him, the game is over. <laughs> draw five cards. Are you for real? Are you for real? <laughs> That's like win more plus a few more and then a little bit more on top. 
Uh, and that's just one of the sea monsters. They're all really, really strong. So this is a really cool archetype right now. Uh, that being said, I think that's really most of the stuff that we wanted to talk about on Legends of Runeterra. If you guys are interested in some of the other new cards, though, definitely check out my YouTube channel. That's youtube.com slash gamer under dev, because I've got another deck on there that covers Misfortune paired up with Darius. And she's got some cool things to bring to the table, too. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of the cards in the Rise of Ties add lots of more. There's a lot of more, like, actions and stuff and combos and, like... Abilities to get added on to each other. And I feel like it. I don't know. Like I, I don't know. Like the terminology and stuff. I feel like maybe the game's a little bit quicker. Or there's more like action. I don't like the term for it, but it feels like there's a lot more actions and stuff that's going to be going on with this set coming with the launch of Legends of Runeterra. I think the the proper terminology would for that would be synergies. There are a lot more synergies, and they're a lot more powerful than they used to be. Uh, which to me, when when I first saw all these cards, I was like, man, this is this is going to be rough. This is a lot of stuff to add into the meta all at once. And I don't think it's going to work out too well. But I have to admit that it's actually been pretty solid. And because they supported sort of every archetype that people like to play, it basically powered everything up at the same time, which is what you want out of a set. If you're going to power stuff up, then try to power it up evenly so that everybody stays on an even playing field. If they can continue to do this, then basically all they do is they introduce variety into how you play the decks that you like to play, which is the good way to grow a game. Uh, it is a little bit of power creep in my opinion, but at the same time, as long as everything is power creeping at the same level, you're kind of okay. The only thing they really have to worry about is there does come a point where you power creep everything so much that it's a problem. Now, I don't know what their plan is for rotations. For all we know, they could do rotations where they take some of these cards out of the pool at some point to lower the power level back down. Or they could just, in their, you know, in their design philosophy, have a set cap for how high they're willing to take the power level and have just introduced a nice little boost here for the Rising Tide since it is the official release of the game. Or maybe this is just to establish the ground level of their power. Either way, it's a great expansion. It supports every style of play. I've been having a blast with it since it came out, and I hope you all will check it out because it is a fun, fun card game. Honestly, I used to play MTG Arena, and I kind of quit that for this. Uh, that and and them charging people $5 for land because that's that's smart. Yeah, the last little thing I want to talk about with the update is that if you were familiar with Legend of Terror, the kind of main way you progress through like unlocking cars is you basically go through a region unlocking uh doing quests and games you xp you fill up basically a bar and you get to different rewards at different bracket points with the launch of uh rising ties east region got five new kind of levels to give you more um of the new cards for each of the regions they're pretty set at pretty low um, XP total, so you can probably knock them out in maybe one or two weeks once you're at the max level for each region. And then, of course, you have the full levels for Bilgewater, so they just got added in this patch. They also added catch-up XP for all of the regions that were in during the beta. Yes, that too. I forgot about that. Thanks. Yeah, so that's great. Uh, anyways, folks, I think that's all we've got to talk about this week. So, as always, Game Goon, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. And GG Gaming Industry.